Dear Heavenly Father God, we just thank you for a wonderful day and a wonderful opportunity to learn about uh, our responsibility to the plans that you set up that we can live a quiet, peaceful, and orderly life. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for Ray that on the study, and uh, we just pray that we all get the most out of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we're going to get back into Romans chapter 13. Very timely, very important uh, passage. And I'm going to broaden it because I think the first two verses, I think, are broader than just government authority and is applicable to broader areas as well. In fact, I want to take a look at this whole concept of authority I don't think we think about it much. We kind of take it for granted, I guess you might even say. But in reality, it is very fundamental, and hopefully we'll, we'll see that as we get into our passage this morning. The center of government, the center of all things, really, in the first century was this area. Some of us were able to visit it. I don't know if you recognize some of the structures there, but... Roman Forum. Everything uh, was centered in Rome in terms of the empire, particularly the government. So very familiar with the believers that lived in the city of Rome that were part of various churches. Some of them were house churches, so individual groups, small groups of people met. And most of the churches were probably smaller than our little extended group here. So written to real people in a real time frame. We're in the portion in the book of Romans towards the end where Paul is applying the principles that he's developed in chapters 1 through 11, 1 through 8, provision of God's righteousness, primarily justification. In other words, a right relationship. He uses a legal term, a right relationship with God. God has provided it his very own righteousness as a standing, as a position in in Christ. And he deals in 9 through 11, dealing with a situation with the nation of Israel in the first century. And he has to vindicate why God has set aside his people and is dealing with Gentiles predominantly now, Jew and Gentile, but the Gentile has a place and Paul has to vindicate that in terms of Jewish thinking and the Old Testament. So that's what chapters 9 through 11 deal with. And now, how does this righteousness, what does it look like in everyday life? What does it look like when we enter into different situations, different relationships? And we title that application. That's 12 through the middle of chapter 15. And then after that, we have the conclusion to the book. So that's essentially where we're at. And there's different areas that he applies. The first area, what does it look like in relationship to God? It looks like an everyday, continuous, moment by moment, laying oneself on the altar of God such that We are a living sacrifice, and in that sacrifice, we're available to whatever God may have. We've set everything that we might desire aside, and we're willing to to do whatever he desires us to do. So that's what it looks like. We saw two aspects of that, not conforming to the world, but in fact, in the process of transformation, transformation forming particularly our minds, and that will have an effect on other areas of our relationships within the church. I think that's the focus of the rest of chapter 12, beginning in verse 3 through the end, and we're in the section, chapter 13. What does Christianity look like? What does justification by faith look like? How does it work itself in society? Chapter 13, and it's a short chapter, the shortest chapter in the book. So hopefully we'll get through it in good time, and then we'll talk about Christian liberty, chapter 14 primarily, and we have an example of, of Jesus Christ himself in chapter 15. 
So that's kind of the broad context of the whole book. And so application to society starts with submission to authority. That's first seven verses, chapter 13. And we can break that down into parts. The first two, we have the foundation of authority and the foundation of submission to that authority, the first two verses. And as I mentioned, I think they are applicable because of a little phrase in verse 1 and 2 that uh, broaden the concept. And then in verse 3, he's very specific in terms of government authority. So that's how we'll look at those two verses. So verse 1, we have a, an exhortation or a command to uh, respond in submission to authority. So let's broaden our study and take a look at this. But before we do that, a couple of verses. Let's look at the verses themselves. Every person, literally in the Greek text, it's every soul. And that's a, a way of, in uh, the Greek language, of referring to every person. That's why it's translated that way. It's very broad, without exception. In fact, we have the basic principle, a basic principle of life. This is kind of the default position, you might say. Now, eventually we'll talk, not today, but there are very, very few exceptions to every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. We'll save that for a little bit later, but we want to develop this broad concept of subjecting or submission to the governing authorities for their, and this is a little phrase, there is no authority except from God. And those, very broadly, including governments, including all of the areas that God has established as authorities, and we'll be talking about them, all those which exist are established by God. In other words, this is fundamental so I want to broaden our study today and look at this concept of authority in a little bit of detail. We'll look at the word itself, and then we'll look at kind of the broader concept throughout Scripture, even going back to the very beginning. So this is the main area we'll look at. Therefore, whoever resists authority, in other words, is not submissive, but is rebellious. Resisting authority has opposed the ordinance of God. We could even translate that the decrees or the laws, the standards, the essence of what God has revealed has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation, very strong condemnation upon themselves. So last time, quick review, we looked and developed the context, city of Rome. And by the way, this Arch of Constantine, if you just turn around and look in the other direction, you'll be facing the Colosseum that I used kind of in the opening slide there. So very close, within a few hundred feet of the Colosseum, close to the Roman Forum. So the context, we saw the textual context last time. Where does it fit in the broader scheme of what Paul is writing in the book of Romans? The immediate context, we looked at chapter 12 and saw that at the end of chapter 12, verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone, respect what is right in the sight of God. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge. In other words, don't try to affect your own justice. Leave room for the wrath of God. God will deal with things that we uh, should not. And then it says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And one of the ways that God does that and the means that he has set up to affect justice in a culture is through the institution of government. So it follows that passage that gives us insight concerning personal relationships, uh, how to deal with them if the need may be. That's part, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now that's what we can do, but part of the process may involve the government as well. So that was the textual context. The historical context 
We took a quick look at the Roman Empire in the first century, looked up a few passages that gave us some insight, and we talked about the Roman Senate, the photograph or the sketch there, pictures, artist's conception of what the Senate may have looked like in the first century and before, and we talked about the Roman government, and I probably wasn't clear on the concept of divided government. What I meant is the power of government is divided. It was in the Roman government. They had a Senate and they had an emperor. But by the time that the uh, book of Romans is written towards the middle of the first century, the uh, power resided primarily in the emperor and the Senate was more of a figurehead to maybe appease the people. So we looked at the Roman government And we spent more time looking at how the Roman government treated the Jews. And we said, overall, they were treated well, probably better than others. But uh, we also saw that they resisted that authority and they had an attitude of self-government. They had an attitude of individuality and they resented being under the thumb of the Roman Empire And in their thinking, they even denied being in that. Uh, We referred to a passage where Jesus talks to one of the Jewish leaders and says something along the lines of never being under the rule of a foreign government, when in reality they were. So they resisted that authority. They had nationalistic views. We looked at Deuteronomy 17. They felt like they had certain rights as a nation, as a people, even though they were under the Roman system. And there was constant rebellion amongst the Jewish people. And we have the extremes pictured. Some of those extremes included zealots. So we talked about them as well. But we didn't look up Acts chapter 5. Would somebody look that passage up and go ahead and read it? And notice in that context, in fact, let me see where I want to start here. We might even start in verse 33. Anyone care to read that passage? This gives you a feel, and it's it's not addressing this rebellion directly. Connie's got her microphone open. But uh, kind of indirectly, just kind of part of what's being described here. We have a mention of two historical rebellions that uh, were primarily Jewish. Uh, Read verse 33 first, Connie. When they heard this, they were furious and took counsel to kill him, kill them. Okay, this is in the context of the apostles preaching after they have been told not to, and the council is furious. And then read verse 34. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And then skip to verse 36, where we have mention 36 and 37 of these past rebellions. And we don't need to read the rest of it, but just... For some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. Now, it doesn't mention a whole lot there, other than uh, we have a rebel, and it's believed that he was Jewish, probably a zealot, and the Roman Empire had to kill him, and uh, the others dispersed. But that was not the only one. We have another one in verse 37. Go ahead. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. Okay. In other words, you know, these rebellious people pop up all the time. And in this context, uh, they're looking at the, the believers as perhaps another sect, another group, maybe not nationalistic, but... Basically, God will deal with them and do away with them is what Gamaliel is telling them. So the only reason I raise that is because we have a mention of two very specific rebellions. And obviously, there would have been many more as well. And we talked about the zealots last time. One of them was a disciple. Jesus Mm -hmm. called a zealot, obviously was converted. His heart changed. And that's the only thing that changes a person from a zealot into a 
a believer that uh, reflects godly character. We have the reference. We won't look it up, but you can jot down Luke 6, 15, and there's other references to the zealot that was a disciple. Acts 18, 1 and 2, we alluded to that, and I think we read that passage where the Jews were, because of rebellion, were actually cast out of Rome, and Nate kind of gave us some insight on the, the timing on that. I think I put it after the writing, but it was actually a little bit before the writing of the book of Romans. So the Romans would have known about that, not only rebellion, but that casting out under Claudius. So I've added a slide here, who reigned between 41 and 54 are the dates that I found. That's when uh, within that reign of Claudius, the emperor, the Jews were expelled from Rome. And I couldn't find a precise date, but somewhere between 49 and 53. Whereas the book of Romans was written 56 or 57, perhaps that winter, the book of Romans was written. So it was after a few years. And uh, people were still probably clearly remembering that very traumatic experience with Jews being expelled from Rome. So that's just reflecting something of the Jewish attitude. Eventually, shortly after the martyrdom of both Peter and Paul, 70 AD, the Jews were actually cast out of Jerusalem, out of Israel in 70 AD, the temple being destroyed and the nation essentially being scattered throughout the known world. In looking up a few things, I came across this painting of the siege of Jerusalem. Although I don't think the temple was a Greek temple as noted there on the slide there. I don't know if you can identify it. See if I can find a cursor there. That's not what the Jewish temple would have looked like. But this is Temple Mount. And obviously the siege is pictured here at the right hand part of the slide, eventually they would have destroyed the temple, burnt the city, scattered the Jews, and it's estimated that 1.1 million Jews and others died in that destruction in 70 AD. So that was the attitude of the Jews. The relationship of believers, we need to take a little bit a look at it. We have more insight and I think Paul is writing the book of Romans in that context to give the biblical attitude that is in, in contrast to the Jewish attitude and lessons could have been learned from the negative concerning uh, what God expected of his people and that was submission to the governing authorities. So the church by this time showed some distinction from Judaism, even within the Roman Empire, even though that was a gradual process where the two were separate. But this is what uh, God expects of believers. He does not expect the rebellion that was reflected by the Jews that were cast out. And now, after 70 AD, the church is an entity unto itself that is composed of both Jew and, and Gentile. And we have not only the instruction here, but we have instruction like in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 12 through 15. Would somebody care to read those two verses? Or not only Paul, but Peter as well. Sharon, do you got them? 1 Peter 2. What was that reference? 1 Peter 2, 12, verse 12 through 15. Peter writes to believers that are suffering and will be facing more suffering under Nero, the emperor, under the government. The persecution now is from the Roman government, not so much as it was earlier amongst the Jews or by the Jews. So go ahead, Sharon, 2.12, First Peter. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority, 
or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Okay, notice all authority. In fact, the word that we have here is the same word that we have in First Peter. We have submission to all authority and specifically government officials. Even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of suffering, the default position or the common and everyday position is that of submission. So every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Now let's take a look at that word authorities first, and then we'll take a look at subjection because we have to understand we have to understand the meaning of that word in order to understand what it means to subject to that authority. So I'm just going to give you kind of a, an overview of the Greek word that is used. The term is exousia. It's the Greek term there. And you can find it referring, if you do a word study, uh, basically the meaning is to to have authority, I mean, it's pretty easy to understand. It can be translated power, to have power, but authority is the more common way that it's translated. And it refers to the authority of several. Now, I'd like for some of you to, to read some of these, because these uh, help us to understand not only the word, but the context that I've chosen or the passages I've chosen in reference to these categories also give us insight into the idea of what it means to be subjected to these issues. First of all, a category, the ultimate category that exousia or authority refers to is God himself. And one of the key passages we want to look at is Jude 25. Somebody want to look up Jude 25? In fact, why don't I put some of these others up here? Some of you have Matthew 28, 18 memorized. If you do, you can quote it. Somebody look up uh, John 19 as well. And somebody else, 2 Corinthians 13, 10. And then Colossians 2, 15. Linda, which one do you have? I have Jude. All right. Jude 25. Go ahead and read Jude 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Okay. All authority. In other words, he has all authority. May it be. It's kind of a blessing and an acknowledgement and a worship of God as the ultimate and final authority. But notice, before all time. So the authority of God is an eternal concept, but he also includes now, present time, and forever, future, eternal time. So the authority of God resides in him. Now, last time we looked up the the passage, what was it, uh, Psalm 62, if I remember right? where it talks about all power. It's an Old Testament passage. All authority belongs to God. So he is the ultimate and final authority. And we're going to look at some other passages later. But one of the things that I'm going to point out is that God has created a universe where he has set up that universe as creator such that he has delegated and set up authority in different realms. We're going to look at that next. But for now, exousia refers to God himself as the ultimate in authority. Who's got uh, Matthew twenty-eight eighteen? This is the Great Commission. Katie, go ahead. Okay. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Okay, so all authority is given to who? Who's speaking there? That's the Lord Jesus Christ giving the disciples the Great Commission, and the word exousia is there. All authority, you could even translate it, all power, all omnipotence is given to Jesus Christ. And this is in resurrection that Christ has and 
claims to have all authority. Now, an interesting passage, John 19. Who wants to read that one? Let me give you the context. Steve, do you want to do this one? John 19. Go ahead and look it up. And let me give you the context. Jesus is on trial before an evil ruler. This is before Pilate, as we'll see in uh, John 19, 10, and 11. And notice, he is the governing authority. He is the ruler of the day. Go ahead, verse 10 and 11, Steve. Okay, Luke. No, John. John. Uh, therefore, John 19, okay. Pilate therefore said to him, uh, you do not speak to me? Do you not know I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you. Okay, stop Jesus there. answered. Notice he right. recognizes the authority that he has as ruler. Now, he doesn't acknowledge God as giving that rulership, but this is pretty common in government to recognize that people have authority. But notice what Jesus does in response or says. Go ahead, Steve. Jesus answered. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. Okay, now he's referring to the Jewish nation there. But notice, Pilate has no authority apart from that that is given, and it's given from above, referring to God the Father. In other words, God has set things up such that he has put Pilate in a position of authority. And it is God, the ultimate in his sovereign plan, has put Pilate in the position that he's in. And Pilate, apart from that, would have no authority. So there's an example of even an, the most evil authority that is on the verge of crucifying Christ that has authority that only comes as a result of that being granted by God. So that's a government example in the context of Jesus himself of a government leader. Uh, Norman, do you have 2 Corinthians 13.10? No, but I can have it. Okay. Or did you have the Colossians passage? Which one did you, you get your mic open? 13.10. We'll go there. Okay. And I'll let Jenny read Colossians 2.15, but go ahead, Norman. Great. Second Corinthians 13.10. I write these things, being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness according to the power which the Lord hath given unto me to edification and not to destruction. Okay. Your version translates exousia as power, and that's a common translation, has basically the same idea. New American Standard translates it authority, and this is the Apostle Paul speaking here. And by the way, there's other examples in the Gospels. For example, Jesus gave them power to cast out demons. We see that in Matthew 10, 1, Mark 3, 15, but here... 2 Corinthians 13.10, Paul acknowledging power that was given to him. All power is granted. So that's an insight into the word. Angels, Satan, demons are even granted power. So they do not have any power apart from that. In the permissive will of God, they have authority and power to exercise. Jenny, you got Colossians 2.15? I do. Colossians 2.15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the... That's the Lord Jesus Christ, through his death, basically conquered the authorities, referring to demonic spirits. And there's lots of contexts that give us other angelic... In fact, for example, I can read, in fact, Jenny, while you're there, read uh, Colossians 2.10, referring to Jesus again. Colossians 2.10, and in Christ you have that to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. 
every power and authority, and he's probably referring in that same context because of verse 15, which is clearer, he's probably referring to angelic authority there. Angelic rule and authority. Since you're there, read Colossians 1.16. Since you're in Colossians, just turn back to chapter six, uh, 1.16. And this is Jesus again. All right. Colossians 1.16. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So in that context, that could be another reference to angelic creatures rather than human authorities or governmental authorities. So that's the usage of the word. You can find it, and there's other usages, but these are the primary ones that you find when you study that word and understand the meaning of it. So that gives you a little bit of the theological context, but let's expand it a little further and take a look at this concept in a broader perspective of this idea of authority. And this will stress the importance of authority and God's perspective on it. And if we understand God's perspective on it, it will help us to be able to submit to authorities that uh, are difficult to submit to, whether it be a wife to an evil husband, or whether it be a government that is evil and the officials that are ungodly and evil, this will put it in the proper perspective and help us to be able to submit under those situations. Or maybe an unreasonable boss that you might be under the same command that we have in Romans 13 applies in all of those situations. So let's look these up as well, and I'd like some of you to read. Here's an interesting one, 1 Corinthians 15, 27. And by the way, there's others, not only where the word authority is used that we just looked at, but where the concept of authority is mentioned. Laurel, I'll have you read that one. You got your mic open. And yeah. Why don't, let me get some others to look up some of these others. We looked up Psalm 62, 11. I won't look that one up. Somebody look up Isaiah 14, 13. And let's see. We won't look that one up. We won't look that one up. I'd like for somebody to look up Revelation 13. Yeah. Who's got it? Sharon. Sharon's got Revelation 13. Okay. Laurel, go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 15, 27. This is where all things are going to be wrapped up. In this context, but notice the subjecting of all things to the authority of the Godhead, of within the Godhead. And notice, even within the Trinity, there is, you might say, a hierarchy of power and authority. Go ahead, Laura. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection under him, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things under him. Okay, read the next one. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things under him, that God may be everything to everyone. Notice, even the Son is in subjection to the Father. So within the Godhead, there is a hierarchy, you might say, of authority. The Son in subjection. Now, this is clearly taught in uh, the earthly life of Christ, where Christ not only submitted himself to the Father, but he submitted himself to earthly authorities as well. Jesus Christ, growing up, submitted to his, his parents. We have a short little note in Luke concerning uh, that relationship at age 12, that incident. But interestingly, the son eternally is subject to the father. And I think that's an eternal concept. So there is authority within the Trinity, and you might even say a hierarchy, if you will. There's an equality 
There's not a diminishing in equality, so it doesn't have anything to do with nature in terms of the Trinity, but there is an order, you might say. This is part of even the Trinity itself. Now, we also see that the ultimate authority, we look this one up. This is the Psalm 62 passage, and we won't look it up. We saw it last time, 62.11, where all power belongs to God. So that's the ultimate and final authority in the universe is God himself. Romans 13 is telling us that God has set the whole universe up such that things function, and particularly creatures function, within a system of hierarchies, you might say, a system of authorities. This is the way by design that God has set up the universe such that he has established authority. This is at the heart of Romans 13. Now, somebody read Isaiah. Who's got that one? Uh, Let's see. I have it. Katie, go ahead. 14, 13. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. Notice at the heart of the fall of Satan, what is he desiring to do and attempting to do? Notice the key word in there. Did you catch that key word there, Katie? If you read the whole passage, it's in the context of Lucifer, the archangel. This is a record of his fall. But notice the little word there. He desired to establish his rulership, his authority, his throne. That's the word. In other words, it's a rebellion against the ultimate authority of God himself. That is at the heart of the fall of Satan. Now, we won't look it up. The point I'm making here is fundamental to sin itself is rebellion against God and particularly rebellion against God's authority. We won't look up Genesis 3.1, but you're familiar with it, the fall of mankind. And what you have in that passage, you have another authority speaking and making suggestions and creating doubt in the woman. And it's doubt, ultimately, that it's worked out. Doubt in the authority of God's word. Has God truly said, thou shalt not eat from that tree? Remember the context there? And she falls for the doubting. She doubts the authority of God's word at the heart of the fall of mankind is this rebellion against authority. So we see it there, and we see it worked out later in the resistance of Cain. We have the little story in chapter 4, verse 1 and following. You're familiar with that, so we don't need to look that one up. And there's also a corporate rebellion against the authority of God, and particularly what God has spelled out for mankind at Babel. And you're familiar with that passage, Genesis 11.1, and following where we have the record of man going directly against what God has said. That's rebellion against God's authority, what God has set up. And as a result of that, we have the judgment at Babel. Now, we also have the judgment of the Genesis flood that's as a result of the culture being so depraved, so rebellious, so apart from God's authority that the Genesis flood is brought. And at Babel, we have the the next judgment, and God, in fact, effects his plan by confusing the languages and scattering the peoples. Now, we could come up with a long list But uh, you could look at sin after Babel within uh, the peoples even before Abraham. And certainly you see rebellion against God's authority within uh, uh, the descendants of Abraham and the children of Israel. And you could trace it all the way into church age and church founding and the history of the church You see rebellion against God's authority. So this is a a very important concept 
to get down. And Romans 13, 1 and 2 is very fundamental. Now, I'd like for you to take an, another look into the future. Where we're going to have the peak of rebellion with Antichrist, Revelation 13. And who is going to read that? Was that Sharon that was going to read 13? That's, that's Sharon. Yes. Okay, start with verse 1, and then I'm going to have you skip around. Verse 4 would be a good one. Yeah, yeah. Start with verse 1 to get the context. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. Okay, that is a picture of Antichrist drawing imagery from uh, the book of Daniel. And notice what it says. Go ahead and read verse 3 and then read verse 4. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. Now stop there. The dragon in chapter 12 is Satan himself. It's clearly spelled out. Now here we have the first beast who is the Antichrist. But notice Satan has authority. But even in verse 2, at the end of verse 2, has great power. Gave him power. That's a, Well, we should have read verse 2. Go back and read verse 2 as well. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him authority, and his throne, and great authority. Great authority. There you have the word exousia, and you have other words as well. The dragon gave him power, a different word. A throne, that's the place of authority, and great authority. And we've already said that Satan, demons, angelic creatures are granted power and authority from God himself. And the dragon is granting authority to the Antichrist. And you read verse 3, skip to verse 4 now. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? Okay. Notice the usage of the word authority several times in that context. Same word that we have in uh, Romans 13. Same concept. This is the ultimate rebellion of the Great Tribulation where there's going to be the most horrendous time that the earth has ever seen. That will be the product of rebellion against God. That will be the product of rebelling against this authority or the authority of God himself. And notice we already read it, but uh, we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, ultimate goal of all of history will be the subjecting. Why don't we read it again? Who read that the first time? Do you still have it? Was that Laurel? Yeah, I have it. Okay. Read 28. Ultimately, this is the goal that God has of putting down all rebellion, all resistance against authority, and it'll be by Jesus Christ, and then Christ himself will subject himself to the Father. Read it again, 1528. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things under him, that God maybe everything to everyone. Okay, that's the ultimate goal of all of world history is the ultimate subjecting of all things under the authority of the Father and Jesus Christ is going to affect that ultimately. The beginning of that will be when he returns, but that'll be completed at the end of world history. 1 Corinthians 15:28. So this gives you a feel for the importance of authority and the importance of choosing volitionally to subject oneself to the authorities that God has established. Uh, who is asking? Is that Jim? Well, I was, yes, no, it's Jeff. Uh, it's Jeff and Jim. Jeff and Jim. Go ahead, Jeff, first. Oh, Jeff first. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, another verse came to mind with regards to uh, power and authority. And it's Luke's 
recording of the temptation of Jesus, and it's Luke 4, verse 6. Yes. And in Luke 4, verse 6, uh, the devil actually says, uh, I will give you, speaking to Jesus, all this domain and its glory, and here's the key, for it has been handed over to me, mm. and I uh, give it to whomever I wish. Yes. So it's a recognition. This is even the devil saying somebody had to give him his authority. Absolutely. And the word exousia is used in that context. Same word we have in Romans. Romans chapter 13. Good. Good parallel. Jim. Okay. Well, first of all, that was a great verse. Jeff, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, this reminded me of a thought I had yesterday, uh, and that is that we sometimes, when we're thinking about our situation here now and what we're going through, in fact, globally, we refer to it as divine discipline. But it occurred to me that divine discipline is really uh, uh, is um, reserved for the believer. And this is beyond divine di- discipline, what we're seeing here. This is spiritual warfare. Yes. So there's a difference. Yes. Yeah, there are lots of authorities that are vying for top authority in the demonic realm. And we get caught up in that warfare. And uh, when we do not submit to the authorities of God, we fall into the hands and are the tools of that demonic world. So this is a very important concept here. So it says every person is to be in subjection. In other words, this is what God desires of us to the governing authorities. And I think it's broader than just the governmental authorities before there is no authority except from God. And the point I'm making here is even, and as Jeff pointed out, even Satan recognizes that he has authority that has been granted to him. But we are called upon to be in subjection, and we voluntarily subject to the authority that God has put us under. So this word submission, here's another key word, the two words, exousia and hupotasso. This word, if you do a word study, you're going to find that there are different areas of life where we are to submit. We'll talk a little bit about that. And the word here is hupo. Those of you that have studied a little bit of Greek, hupo is under or to put under the preposition. And then hupotasso, it has the idea of putting something under. It's a military term. In other words, it's it's a term where you have hierarchy of authority, like in a military. You have that authority above authority down to the, the private. It's a military term. It's to line up under something like a soldier would to rank oneself under an authority. That's the idea of the word hupotasso. And we have the concept of submitting to any authority, not just military, but in this context, government authority. In other contexts, it's clear authority that God has set up in the home, whether it be wives in subjection to husbands or children in subjection to parents or on the job. In fact, we have all these categories that we'll get into in a moment. It begins with submission to God. It begins with Romans 12, submitting to the point of being a living sacrifice, not exercising our desire, our will, but laying it on that altar. So it begins with submitting to God, and it includes the attitude of the heart. This is not, in fact, it reminds me, I should have looked it up. I've got it somewhere, but I've got a cartoon of Dennis the Menace sitting in a corner and he's being disciplined and he's uh, not very happy about it. And he's sitting down in this little stool and the little bubble of his thoughts is, I may be sitting down physically, but I'm standing up in my heart, I think is the way that it puts it. Or I may be sitting on the 
outside, but I'm standing up on the inside is the cartoon. That's the essence of rebellion. So it includes a heart attitude, not just simply the legalistic outward submitting. So it begins with submission to God and includes a heart attitude. And this is at the heart of who we are as believers, and it touches every area, every relationship, a heart attitude of submitting. And for there is no authority except from God. We have the reasoning here, and we've been expanding upon that. No authority except from God. And those which exist, even in the demonic world, and certainly within governmental authority, even amongst evil, unbelieving authorities, those which exist are established by God. That's the general overall principle. And let's close by looking at some of these areas that God, in setting up the entire universe under a system of authority, he has delegated some of that authority. In fact, we see that very early, God is sovereign over the entire creation by virtue of being creator. But in Genesis 1.28, he gives us the one of the first divine institutions, the divine institution of the family. And in that context, he has delegated authority to man to rule. There's the word. That's authority. Rulership. That's power. To rule the earth. So God has delegated to mankind authority over the earthly creation. So even from the beginning, even in Genesis, this is all before the fall, where God has granted limited, finite authority to mankind over the creation. And then he establishes the family as well. So we can talk about these divine institutions that God has established. And uh, there's different views. In fact, I need to mention this just to kind of call to our attention some of the conflicts that we have within our culture, different views on these social structures, you might call them. The secular view is that these social structures like family, like marriage, even government are arbitrary conventions. They can be changed. You don't have to have one man and one woman make up a family unit. You can have two men or you can have two women or you can have a combination or however way that you want to change these arbitrary conventions. That's the secular viewpoint. And it's moving in the area or it has moved to the area of government as well, where different structures are set up that violate some of what God has established even in the area of government. But there is a biblical viewpoint And God has established and has delegated authority within what we describe as divine institutions. They are not arbitrary. They're not changing. In other words, God has established them as part of the creation. He's established divine institutions. They're foundations to the functioning of a culture. And when we violate these foundations, then uh, we degrade and begin the degenerating process of any culture. And the ones that God has set up, first one is marriage and then family. And we have a lot of instruction where the word exousia is used and the idea of authority. God has built marriage such that he has set it up. And this is in the original creation. God has set up, Genesis chapter 2, headship. And God has established men. Now, men need to take the responsibility of that headship. But women are called upon, not diminished in terms of personhood, but in terms of function. And remember, even within the Godhead, there is submission. So God has set it up. When we violate that, we are basically getting out of fellowship, for one. And secondly, 
not doing what God has designed and not functioning in the capacity that God has has set us up. And we have the Ephesians passage, Ephesians 5, that speaks about marriage and that relationship. Chapter 6 deals with children submitting to and obeying parents. Also, Ephesians 6, we have masters as authorities over, in that context, slaves. But we can apply that passage to our employment situation, our bosses, our authorities in the workforce. God has also established the institution. These are divine institutions, the church. Now, this one comes later. God established government in Genesis chapter 9 as a divine institution. And God delegates authority and without exception. And we saw that illustrated by Jesus in front of Pilate, where Jesus acknowledges that there is authority, but it's coming from God. And God is going to use Pilate to uh, bring about the crucifixion even. And in that, the, the provision of salvation for all of humanity. So God will use all of these institutions to effect his will within our lives, including government. And that's the passage that we're looking at in the Romans 13 passage. And those which exist are established by God. So that's a good place to stop. Verse 1, and there's no distinction whether it's a monarchy, whether it's under a king, or whether it's aristocratic, something like the Roman Empire or a republic, or whether it's a democracy, whether it's totalitarian, whether it's atheistic, whether it's evil, there's no distinction whether leaders are fulfilling their purpose or not. That's what Romans 13 is dealing with. Whether wives have unbelieving husbands, that's made clear in 1 Peter 3. So even in those situations, now there's exceptions to all of these, and we'll discuss those, but we're not going to do that today. In fact, we probably won't do it next week as well. But eventually, as we go through these verses, we'll address some of the exceptions. But Romans 13 sets up the standard. In other words, this is the default position. And apart from any exceptions in general, this is the response that God has for us. It's one of submitting to the governing authorities. So we'll talk about exceptions later. So this concept of submitting to authority, all of us find ourselves under some authority. All of us are called upon to be submissive. Most of us are under government authority, but even government officials are under authority as well. Even the President of the United States is under the authority of the Constitution and under the ultimate authority of God himself. So a most important principle and one that we're tempted to violate at every point. And we'll develop that even further next time. Well, let's close in prayer. And anyone, uh, first of all, Connie, do you have? We were going to hear from Jeff as an update on his back. Okay. And we're going to pray for Phyllis. Correct. Did you want to hear from me right now? Yes. Go ahead, Jeff. Uh, It turned out that my C4 and C5 were... Uh, out of position and pinching some nerves. It took three visits to the chiropractor and up till about Friday to get everything back in order. But I am now with my head in the position it's supposed to be. Uh, chiropractor got my head screwed on straight. <laughs> Good. And uh, we've got a couple of minutes, Steve or Mike and Katie. Do you want to why don't you introduce Arthur? Uh, I don't think any of us know who he is. I don't. Can you tell us a little bit? And maybe Arthur can tell us a little bit more. Go ahead. Hello. Hello. You. Yeah, I was trying to activate Sorry. my video. Hang on. There I am. Hey, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like tapping the button. Hey. It won't let me. Hey, good morning, everybody. <laughs> good morning. Well, um, I, I met Arthur on 
I know I don't remember what group we're in on Facebook. It's either a dispensational group or a free grace group. But I, uh, I'm not sure which one is. Dispensation. Okay. So, uh, gosh, how did we get to talking? I don't. I, we just uh, um, dialogue on a lot of the same things online and uh, became friends on Facebook. And uh, yeah, I, I just. <laughs> Uh, reached out to Arthur and uh, was like, hey, there's a great a great Bible study I've been a part of during this whole time. Um, you know, if you're looking for, you know, something to, to do on Sunday mornings, this is great. So uh, I'll let Arthur take the lead because I honestly, I don't know too much about him other than we're, we're in this group together on Facebook that um, has a lot of interesting, fun discussions, uh, theological discussions. And yeah, well, I'm way over my stuff. head, by the way, in that group. <laughs> um, well, same here. <laughs> I'm swimming with the big fish. <laughs> anyway, yeah, and it's, and it's been good to, um, get in on that group too but um yeah um katie's been really kind with me every once in a while i'll get off that group page and i'll, and I'll pm and say what are they talking about or you know but um yeah and then um katie mentioned this particular group that you guys are, are meeting with and and i i thought well i'll take a stab at it and then she mentioned the time you guys meet and i thought okay <laughs> But uh, real quick, I know you guys are limited on time like that. Um, I'm over here in California, and um, uh, let's see. Uh, I've been saved since high school um, through Campus Crusade through Christ, uh, you know, the Fellowship for Christian Athletes ministry that they have out there. And um, I came up through sort of the Calvary Chapel um, uh, movement uh, most of my life and um, uh, did that, um, gosh, most of my whole life up here. And... Um, uh, I did a little bit of uh, ministry myself up here in uh, Northern California. Um, I ran a, um, a Marysville um, Outreach Church here where we ministered to sort of the homeless and stuff. Uh, and then I ran an um, outreach on oil chemical workers for Christ through uh, um, a workplace ministry that I retired as an oil worker up here in California uh, two years ago, uh, 30 years at an oil refinery. Um, so now I'm getting used to the retired life. Me and my wife, um, I have uh, five kids, eight grandkids, and one great grandchild, um, and uh, just trying to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and love my Lord. And um, and I'll tell you, praise <laughs> Lord, chills. praise Lord. Uh, you have anything to pray about? We'll uh, we'll include you in the prayer time. Yeah, I, I I've been um, given this gift of um, chronic hemiplegic migraines that um, they get me about probably. Three to four, sometimes um, five days a week. Okay. We'll they cut. mimic like strokes and migraines. So oh. when I get them, they kind of shut down my right side of my body. But yeah, they're pretty miserable. But um, it's caused me to really draw pretty close to the Lord. And Katie and her family have been praying for me. Okay. And um, is my gone too? We also have prayer warriors that will remember you during the week, Arthur. And Oh, uh, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's exhausting. <laughs> Well, let's do it. Go ahead and feel, pray as you feel led. And after everybody's done, we'll shut her down. Lord, I thank you so much for today. Um, I thank you for this uh, new season that we're in in spring. And um, just as a, a reminder of the the return of spring, you know, you're, you're going to return someday too. You keep your promises and uh, that's just reflected in everything, uh, your whole creation. And I uh, just thank you for Ray. Thank you for the preparation that uh, it took him and the, um, the commitment that he has and the love, the love he has for you to learn your word and uh, teach it to others. And God, I just uh, ask that um, you continue to heal Phyllis. Um, keep her safe as well, too. Um, I also pray for the people in M Myanmar. And uh, God, I just pray that you give them peace. Um, protect them, Lord. And uh, just uh, I, I just pray that we uh, continue to remember them in, in our prayers throughout the weeks to come. Um, God, I also pray for uh, our friend Arthur. Uh, 
please, Lord, just give him comfort, heal him, Lord. Um, just, uh, help him continue to just draw close to you, God, for comfort. And, uh, just thank you for, for always being there for us, Lord. Lord, we thank you for answering our prayers. Uh, thank you that I was able to make a successful trip, five-hour trip to Mexico City this week and um, uh, deliver my passport to request a new one, a uh, renewal. And also that my bankers here are going to try to figure out how to get my uh, fingers into their uh, fingerprint system so that I don't have to carry a passport around all the time and possibly lose it. Um, and uh, so, Lord, we just thank you for all these practical helps, and, and I certainly do pray for um, Arthur and, and for his situation, that you will enable him to be able to continue to function and serve others as he has been. Amen. 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 Am